What's up, guys? It is Monday, October 25th, episode 190. Today, I have Alex Pruden on. He is the COO of Alio. Alio is this marriage of smart contracts and zero knowledge proofs. I will let Alex explain all that to you, but we have a great conversation about how you can have more privacy applications built on blockchain, what their uses are for, what people are building, and what you can expect in the future in terms of these privacy applications built on blockchain. Anyways, be sure to subscribe and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about blockchain and crypto and Alio. Enjoy. Alex, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, man? Doing great. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to be here. Nice to meet you, Brandon. It's nice to meet you as well. Uh, happy to have you on. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself to kind of kick this off and get it started. I'm very curious what your what your story's like. How did you get into this space? How did you get into crypto and blockchain? Um, yeah, give me a little bit of your background. Yeah, sure. So, um, by the way, that question is like my favorite question. That's, that, mm -hmm. that, the answer to that question is my favorite thing about this industry is it brings together people from a incredibly wide array of backgrounds. And uh, it's, it's one of my favorite parts about being part of the industry, like I said. Um, mm -hmm. To answer your question, though, as for my background, um, I guess you could say I kind of came to crypto from a non-traditional path. Uh, the first 10 years of my career, um, I was a soldier in the U.S. Army. So I um, come from a military family and I was in high school when the 9-11 attacks happened mm -hmm. and, you know, felt like I was kind of called to serve. And so I joined the Army um, and I ended up commissioning in 2008 as an infantry officer. And I, you know, spent time in Afghanistan and then later went um, into special forces and, you know, was in other parts of the Middle East. And specifically, my last deployment was uh, working in Turkey with the Syrian rebels and we were, we were training them to fight, um, the, the regime and, um, you know, and ISIS at the time. And that's actually, you're like, where's this going? But that's actually how I got into crypto. Um, yeah. So we, we, I learned about, you know, crypto from, uh, Turk, you know, Turk, Turkey, you, you probably know it, it, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are very popular there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I learned about it initially from a Turk. And as we were working kind of in and around a lot of these refugee camps, I heard story after story uh, of, you know, from people who had fled the Civil War and ended up losing access to their wealth. Because, you know, as most people probably know, but I didn't at the time is like, you know, when you cross a border, accessing the money in your bank account becomes a little bit more difficult. I mean, not mm -hmm. if you're an American, but if you're a Syrian and you're in Turkey or you're in Jordan, it certainly does. So I've had any that of problem these people, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's like, that's just, it's just kind of the nature of the global financial system at the time. I'd never thought about it before. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but you know, this idea that Bitcoin specifically Bitcoin represented this store of value or, or, or in some sense, your wealth that you could port in your, in your head by memorizing a private key or, you know, a mnemonic phrase that you could allow you to regenerate your key, whatever it may be like that. And, and you could walk anywhere in the world, like with your, with your wealth kind of there, like was, was really incredible to me, you know, cause again, these, these people who I was talking to, many of them were from the upper classes of Syrian society, doctors, mm -hmm. dentists, et cetera. And they felt one day they found themselves on just the wrong side of the front line and they had to make this choice for their lives. But after the fact they, they ended up being effectively impoverished. Right. And so I kind of viewed that as a, as a tragedy, 
and and learning about Bitcoin and thinking about it in that environment and also reflecting upon, you know, kind of some of the other conditions that I witnessed in the Middle East, like rampant corruption, for example, or in the case of Afghanistan, there just simply was no system to keep track of things like property. Like just it, it just struck me that this this was a technology that had such powerful potential applications. And yeah, so I, I left the military after after about 10 years. I, I got out in 2017 and I was like, how do I get into this space? Um, initially, I, I tried, you know, I thought about doing a degree in computer science, um, but the schools that I was would have been qualified for for computer science, you know, would have didn't really have great communities of people who are in the space. So I ended up applying to business school, was fortunate to get into Stanford University and I was I was um, helped start the Stanford Blockchain Club. And then just kind of got more and more into it, both from taking courses, both in the computer science department and, and kind of other departments that were what I, you know, stuff I consider relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's how I start, sort of started educating myself about the space at a technical level. And then also I just looked for opportunities to get into it. And I, I kind of caught a lucky break timing wise. It was 2017. I just started in the fall. And, you know, you probably remember 2017 was kind of the ICO, the heyday of ICOs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stanford happens to be just down the road from a lot of, venture capital firms. And one day they sent an email out on our listserv or whatever saying, Hey, we're looking for an analyst. And I applied, you know, with zero work experience outside of the army thinking, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get this job at this one firm as particularly it was GGB capital was, the, was this, it was this firm that sent the email and I'm like, there's no way I'm getting this job, but I'll just throw my hat into the ring. Cause I was really interested in the space. And sure enough, I ended up getting interviewed and ended up getting the job. And I worked for them part-time uh, for my first year at Stanford. Through them, met some folks at Coinbase, where um, I ended up being actually the first uh, intern on their new corporate development team for the summer between my first and second year, and kind of came back to Stanford that second year. He was running the Stanford Blockchain Club, like I said, and had, was planning on returning to Coinbase um, when I got, um, you know, I, I was taking this cryptography class at the time, and the professor who's a pretty famous cryptographer. His name is Dan Bonet. He's the inventor of BLS signatures, among other things. Anyway, I was the only business student in his class and he emails me before class one day. He's like, Hey, Alex, I need to talk to you. And I was thinking to myself, Oh man, I've definitely failed out of this course because <laughs> I'm just a fish out of water, you know? And much to my surprise, he was like, Hey, you know, I, I advise a venture capital firm, you know, would you be open to an intro? They're looking for an analyst. And it turned out to be Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and so oh, cool. through him, I got connected to the team at Andreessen Horowitz and in particular, Katie Hahn, who had relatively recently joined as a general partner and uh, kind of hit it off and ended up getting offered a role as a deal partner, which I started. So I was a deal partner on the A16Z crypto team starting just before I graduated Stanford in 2019, all the way until last year, uh, actually almost exactly a year ago, uh, when I got excited about Alio and, and kind of the vision there. and. Um, decided to leave the world of investing and and be uh, be at a startup, and so I joined Alio, and like I said about a year ago, I uh, started as the chief strategy officer, and I'm the chief operating officer. So that's my story. Yeah, that's a cool backstory. Um, actually, I have a couple of questions just on your backstory. Um, but yeah, back in your military days, I guess do you think it was mostly the the need for financial accessibility for a lot of those people that really piques your interest, I guess, because Bitcoin definitely helps solve that problem in a lot of different ways. And people look to crypto for, for that in a lot of different places. And I've noticed that even in, here in Latin America uh, with Venezuelans that have been displaced and them going to crypto and, and Bitcoin to try and find ways to move their money around. So I've definitely seen it a lot. 
Yeah, no, that that was like the first kind of motivation. The really, I guess, the thing that really struck me as powerful because you know, as a in, in the special operations unit that I was part of, which is special forces, Army Special Forces, colloquially the Green Berets. Um, mm-hmm. The idea, the motto is like "Diapresso Liber," which is "Free the Oppressed." And so the idea of liberty is like, and the whole the whole mission is like you're training people to like help themselves basically, and and so it's mm-hmm. like it it very much aligned with that philosophy this idea of really you're enabling people you're empowering people with their own financial liberty and that that caught on and i think it is very applicable not only in the middle east but as you pointed out in latin america and a lot of places where you know i think it's easy to forget you know in the us or in, in western europe or in places that are pretty developed it's easy to forget that for most people most of the time in human history like mm-hmm. There's not a centralized party that you can rely on, right? Oftentimes they're malicious or or maybe ignorant of you and don't care about your interests, right? So it's kind of a unique moment that we exist in in history. And but I think a lot of people, specifically in the third world, who don't have haven't grown up or haven't witnessed or experienced that kind of trustworthy central party, uh, get it intuitively. And um, and so yeah, so that that's how I got into it. When you were at Stanford, did you notice any desire from students or faculty or professors in in regards to crypto or blockchain? Like, was it at all like a conversation topic at the time? Um, I, I know it is on a lot of college campuses today, and it kind of was when I was in college. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, going to Stanford and that being such a very good school, um, was that ever like a topic? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say it ebbed and flowed. I mean, in 2017 everybody was into it, mm-hmm. right? I was running the club, yeah. I was running the blockchain club and there would be like 400 people showing up to this, these events. And then, you know, fast forward to 2019 and, you know, we had like Justin Drake from the Ethereum foundation showed up and I think two people came, you know, which is like mm-hmm. crazy. Um, so it had been flow, but I have to say like compare, I, I, I think, you know, it's still in Silicon Valley there. So there's a lot, there were a lot of people, but not only students, but also faculty who, you know, who were interested in the space. Um, and like I said, the professor that I referenced, Dan Bonet, you know, he, he'd been involved in the space for quite a while. And, um, and, and so, yeah, so that, I would say it, it ebbed and flowed, but there was, there was um, a healthy enough amount of interest um, to keep me busy, certainly running, uh, running the blockchain club and being a student. Yeah, I, I, I was a science major. I remember there being the speaker series that we had to go to at least once a week on like Wednesdays and they'd bring in all these different tech guys or whatnot, and they would talk about something for like an hour and we'd have to sit there and take notes. Um, most people didn't want to go and never showed up and, and a huge auditorium. Maybe there was like 20, 30 people um, across the campus. And then I remember one time they brought someone in that was doing something within blockchain. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember what the company was, but that auditorium was packed all the way, all the way out the door. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's good and cool though, but it's funny because they don't offer any kind of courses or anything on blockchain or any tracks to to get into the industry. Yet there's so much student interest. It's just kind of funny. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because there are I've noticed it's kind of um, polarizing among mm-hmm. uh, people in you know in computer science and people with a computer security background. Like some people just really don't like it at all they they kind of mm-hmm. the the maybe it's like the financial aspect makes it feel a little bit a little bit strange so there, there's a lot of very smart computer security and computer science experts that just do not touch it at all and kind of you know would excommunicate <laughs> excommunicate it if they could but there's others that, that embrace it and i think it just just kind of 
kind of the things. But I, I think, look, I mean, we can get more into this later, but I, I really think this, mm -hmm. this technology enables these capabilities um, to trustlessly transfer uh, or exchange assets between parties or that I, I think that just, that's a unique, without a trusted intermediary, that's a unique capability that never existed before and, and that, that can power a lot of primitives um, in, in the future of finance. So I, I think inevitably in 10 years time, there'll be plenty of courses on blockchain, I hope uh, at least. The demand for it's there. Um, every, it seems like yeah. every single year, um, demand for some type of developer within blockchain is like, you know, in the top three, like most needed jobs. So it's going to happen at some point. It's it's inevitable. Um, but well, tell speaking, me more about, yeah, tell me about Alia that, though. Yeah, oh, sure. Sorry, go ahead. Say, I, I was just going to say on that last note, I mean, speaking is now at a startup mm -hmm. where we're constantly trying to hire engineers with blockchain experience. Yeah. The demand is definitely there. And, you know, of course, I, I saw this across the board when I was. Um, when is I it hard to find uh, engineers that have that experience? I think it, it yes, it is. Um, because, I mean, look, it's like, you know, at most, Satoshi had, would have at most 11 years mm -hmm. of blockchain experience, right? So it's like, it's just not that old of a space. And of course, Satoshi was probably like one of the few people who was into it, you know, in his kind of small cohort of people. Um, you know, for the first two or three years, they were kind of the only sure. people. And then, you know, really, I think since Ethereum, uh, the launch of Ethereum in 2016 and in 27, I think more and more people started coming to space. But yeah, if you compare it to like the world of JavaScript developers, I mean, it's extremely hard to find people um, with that expertise. So, um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully more of them crop up in the future. I imagine that is hard to source out. Um, but no, tell me a little bit more about uh, Alio, what you guys are doing, like w what is it and what's the goal? Yeah. So um, maybe like a little bit of background. So, you know, I, okay. I, I was not, I was never technical uh, before, like in the army, I, I didn't have like a technical job. Like I said, I, mm -hmm. I was a special forces officer. I studied international relations and Arabic in undergrad. Um, but, you know, at Stanford, I, I was trying to educate myself more on kind of the more technical aspects of the space and, you know, um, and, and particularly cryptography really interested me. And one of the one of the areas of cryptography that is still up and coming, but I think is very, very exciting and 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 relatively unknown outside of the crypto space is this idea of zero knowledge cryptography, right? Mm -hmm. And what is zero knowledge cryptography? It's kind of this it's it's this technique, it's a cryptographic technique wherein I can prove something to you. I can prove to you that something is true without revealing why it's true, right? And it's it's kind of simple to state, but it's got these really subtle and interesting, there's, there's really subtle and interesting uh, application or applications for something like that, right? Traditionally, there's sort of this, um, I think in, in the computer security world or just in general in the world, there's this spectrum of like verifiability and privacy, right? So it's like in order to verify the veracity of some information, you kind of by definition have to reveal the information itself and, mm -hmm. and you kind of, and so, you know, sort of the sliding scale Trade off, but the cool thing about zero knowledge cryptography to me was that you could do both at the same time. Like you could ver you could verify the veracity of some information or that you know some program evaluated correctly without actually seeing how it worked. It's similar to listeners you show who might be you know familiar with other areas of cryptography. It's kind of like homomorphic encryption, where it lets you basically compute over encrypted data, but it's kind of a weaker form of it that's much more practical. So anyway, I was learning about all this stuff mm -hmm. at Stanford, and I was like, wow. I can't believe no one knows about this. This is like amazing. And you know, this is around the time Zcash was kind of coming out. 
or it just just kind of launched um, Sapling, like their network upgrade. And so it's a little bit of interest in the crypto space, but outside of it, um, not a whole lot. So I was just I was really fascinated by that. And, and I was really excited by that idea. And so at, at A16Z, um, you know, I was I was kind of focused on that, um, at least partially. And when Alio, you know, Alio was founded by this gentleman, Howard Wu, who um, is a was a student under Alessandro Chiesa at the University of Berkeley, and Alessandro and Howard have both, you know, contributed to the academic literature for zero knowledge cryptography. And I had met Howard at a conference years before, and um, and you know, he really impressed me. And again, I was really interested in, in these ideas. And, And uh, yeah, so that's 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 what led me. I mean, the interest into zero knowledge cryptography is what led me to Alio. Now, why Alio specifically? So Alio is a so put stated simply, Alio is a platform for private decentralized applications, right? Um, and I think both of those words are very important. I think if you look at the history of cryptocurrencies, you kind of start like Bitcoin. I, I kind of consider this the dawn of the modern era. I mean, there were many attempts at digital currencies before Bitcoin, all of them had, you know, were interesting in some ways, had problems that prevented them from taking off. Bitcoin was the first thing that really worked, right? But Bitcoin is neither really programmable, nor is it particularly private, right? Um, you know, companies like Chainalysis can figure out who people are. And, you know, Bitcoin does have Bitcoin script, but, you know, it's not a particularly powerful language that allows you to express some, some interesting logic, right? And so Ethereum, you know, if the advent of Ethereum was kind of, or the innovation of Ethereum was really that it extended Bitcoin along this programmability axis, right? Let you do smart contracts um, that were Turing complete, right? Just let you express much more complicated programs in a much more succinct fashion. And then on the other side, on the other axis, like the privacy, fixing kind of the privacy piece of Bitcoin is what Zcash was really focused on. But Zcash, at least at the time, and, and more or less still today, doesn't really have, um, the power, it doesn't empower you to write smart contracts, right? So Alio tries to kind of marry both of those things. It really extends Zcash and tries to give you a programming model that's closer uh, to Ethereum. And the way that it does this is, is through this, this execution model, which is based on this research called Zexi, the zero knowledge execution. And so that's what a that's the core of Alio. That's what it's built around. So we have a with that, what does that include? So there's a we have our own layer one blockchain. And that's you know for data availability, and that that's just like Zcash or Ethereum. That's where these you know these transactions get stored, and you have miners that kind of val verify these transactions and validate blocks, and so that's sort of the base layer. And then you have the second layer, which is kind of this this execution model, which is our equivalent of the EVM, and we call it Snark VM. Snark is stands for succinct non-interactive argument of knowledge. It's kind of like a zk. It's a it's a flavor of zero knowledge proof. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the second layer is the execution environment wherein where these smart contracts are run. And then above that, we have um, these developer tools, one of which is uh, our language, our you know kind of specific open source language for writing writing programs that compile into the format that you need to, to kind of create zero knowledge proofs. So that's so that's like I said, it's called Leo. And then we have like some developer tools and explore a block explorer, um, a wallet, um, studio and, you know so it's all this stuff to kind of make it easy and intuitive for a developer coming from even from the world of the web not even from the world of crypto to go in and start kind of playing with this with this technology and and i think the last like the last few bits are what are one of the things that really excite me is because before now you've really needed to be an expert in cryptography to even play around 
with creating zero knowledge proofs. And the goal for Leo and, and for Alio Broadway is to make, or Alio broadly, is to make this technology accessible to any developer. So anyway, that's uh, that's mm -hmm. Alio, I guess I would say in a nutshell, but I think I took a long time describing it, so. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, okay, so got it. So Alio is like this holy matrimony between smart contracts and zero knowledge proofs, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, got it. Um, is there any concern with, you know, zero knowledge proofs or anything built with, you know, ZK, ZK tags, ZK snarks, any of that stuff, um, potentially being made illegal in the U S I know it's been floated around a while, um, having these, um, blockchains that are, you know, private or anonymous or that use ZK snarks in some kind of way, uh, might not be legal in the U S going forward if they pass certain bills. Is that any concern or do you think it'd, it'd stop you guys at all or anyone in the industry from doing so? Yeah, so I think the TLDR is I actually think this is the perfect technology for a regulated financial system. And I'll get into that more in a minute. But let me just first say that, like, philosophically, I completely understand the desire to, let's say, prevent terrorists from raising money. I mean, remember, I was in the army for 10 years fighting what we used to call the war on terrorism, right? Like ISIS and Al Qaeda and all these guys. Like, so I, I get it. Like, you can't, you don't want to build a technology and that enables groups like that to flourish right sure um but i actually like i said i think this is this is something well i guess on the other hand right you don't a, a fully transparent financial system like like is kind of what bitcoin and ethereum is is really hard to imagine for most people most of the time like you know if if all of our bank accounts were on ethereum like brandon i could just go to the ethereum well i could go to etherscan and just like look up your net worth right now right like and that's yeah that's something that a lot of people i think if you put it to them that way they're like whoa that's like really it's a little creepy I don't like that yeah a little invasive Not, and then yeah exactly and then like take and then and of course like talk about businesses that are like negotiating contracts with each other i mean like it, those details of course you know they're it's very important that those stay private for a variety of financial and legal reasons so like you kind of have you do kind of need some layer of privacy Right. And, you know, now, yes, you could achieve this if you have some central system that's like managing permissions for who sees what. But then, of course, you don't really get the benefit of what blockchains have given us, which is like, you know, it's a, it's a decentralized system in which different parties can interact trustlessly. And that ends up being cheaper in a lot of in a lot of cases. Um, so anyway, so you, you can but you can marry the needs to have privacy from the other participants in the economy but prove to regulators that for example you're not paying anyone on an ofac list or like a like a blacklist you know mm -hmm. um from ofac you know that you're paying your taxes that you're doing you see, there's a variety of ways to demonstrate that you've complied again using the zero knowledge proofs that like saying you follow the rules and cryptographically proving that you have without revealing how you follow them right does that make sense so i think right. it's in that way, so that's why I think it's perfect for regulators. And this is also, by the way, why central banks are studying this technology a lot for CBDCs, right? And MIT, I think, is kind of at the center of this. And it's, you know, MIT has a lot of folks that think and know and contribute a lot to the space of CK. Yeah, I, th I totally agree with you on the on the part that, you know, privacy, confidentiality, that kind of stuff, you know, needs to exist for many, many different reasons. And it's, it's important for government, important for corporations. Um, small businesses, individuals, pretty much everyone, um, to a degree. So, but what, what kind of privacy 
blockchain-based applications are they building um, specifically that they need or they want to use that kind of helps you know alleviate these issues or solves these problems? I mean, I think one really great example um, of an application that needs privacy are decentralized exchanges. Um, True. And and why is that? I think like these. A decentralized exchange like Uniswap, which, by the way, I'm a huge fan. Of, so let me just state, I'm a huge fan of both Ethereum and Bitcoin and everything I talk like, I don't view, I guess this is maybe a good time to kind of state this disclaimer. I don't view Alio as an Ethereum killer or as a Bitcoin killer or as an anything killer. I think Alio has its own unique approach that makes it kind of useful for certain things. And I think I kind of really feel that way about every layer one. Every layer one, I think, kind of makes trade-offs. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of technical trade-offs or philosophical trade-offs that make them maybe more suited to one application. Anyway, okay. But one of the things that privacy gets you that Alio can enable, where, whereas Ethereum cannot, is there is no front-running, right? In Ethereum, if I want to submit a transaction to Uniswap, everyone in the world gets a chance to have a say if they want to go before me, right? And, and this is, I mean, it's, it's a major, major problem. I think that people don't really realize it's kind of in the same vein that, you know, you interact with a social media platform and you're really giving up your data and, and it's being taken advantage of at your expense. This is like even more explicit than that. Like you're literally conveying information to the world that everyone else can profit from at your literal expense. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, look, and for people who are maybe trading on Uniswap in small amounts, like reality is the MEV minor extractable value or front running is not a concern for them. But but if you're trading in the amounts that like a traditional OTC desk trades, um, you're definitely not, you cannot do it on Uniswap for number one, you're gonna move markets too much. Number two, like I said, there's there's too much arbitrage profits to be made on your back um, that you would risk it, right? This is why many of these traders like go directly to miners and basically sit, like the miner is effectively end up being the bank in a bizarre way, mm -hmm. right? But here in this, in this case, in Alio's case, every transaction looks like every other transaction. So a miner, the validator on the network is just uh, says, okay, well, who's giving me the highest fee? I have no idea what's inside the transaction, but I can order it based on fee. And so it's, it's in some sense more fair. So that's one, I think that's one example. Um, I think there's a lot of other examples, a lot re related to identity. And there's been mm -hmm. a lot of interesting work on Ethereum to enable credit scoring. And being able to kind of like let people take out loans, maybe less than 100% collateral up, put up front. You know, and I think identity is just a hard problem. And particularly on chain, you have to be comfortable with all of that ident identifying information being public and available to everyone forever. Right. Again, mm -hmm. this is kind of like a little bit dystopian. So, again, Alio is, is potentially another way around that where, you know, the silly example that I like to get, that I like to give here is like, you know, you go to a bar, you show your driver's license, the bartender, you know, the bouncer looks, he's like, okay, are they over 21? But in the process of looking at your birthday, like they can read your address. They can see everything about you, like that's on your driver's license. They don't really need to know it, but they still have to see it, right? Whereas in this model, using zero knowledge proofs, you can just prove, you're like, hey, I'm over 21. And based on the cryptography underlying it, the bouncer can be convinced of just by simply seeing that proof that it's true. Um, so I think identity is another really big application. Yeah, I, I think identity is like, um, what about like outside just identity? What about like titles or um, like a health record that you can take with you anywhere, but, you know, keep it private at the same time? I think there's a lot of potential applications that need that privacy aspect, but still need blockchain 
so that has that universal, you know, trait to it. Totally. Yeah. Like private, you know, private medical records, I think is, is absolutely an application. I kind of view that as a subset or like a, you know, if you solve the identity problem, you can kind of solve that problem yeah. too, you know, cause you still, you need an identity to be tied to these records. And that's kind of the big thing that you don't want to reveal. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's a lot of interesting applications. One actually application that's kind of most people don't think about that I think is really cool is gaming. Um, I don't know. Have you ever played dark forest? No, uh, I've, I've played games, but I haven't played that one. Okay. So dark forest, anybody who's listening, by the way, should check this out. It's a game on Ethereum. Um, it's basically kind of like a, it's like a strategy game. Um, and it's kind of set inside of like, you know, the universe or set, yeah, set in kind of like this galaxy setting. And the goal of the game is to like take over planets and accumulate as much like, you know, materials and well, kind of like it, like a Starcraft type thing, but maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more low tech. And the cool thing about it is it all runs on the Ethereum blockchain. And so place, you know, I, or, or a layer two, I think built on top, but you know, everybody's playing and there's no central server that's kind of managing what people see. Right. And it, you know, it's kind of like, you're like, okay, well, that's fine. People play Starcraft and like, it's, you know, it works fine. But like th this model just gives you, it, it's just, it's never been before possible to play a multiplayer hidden information game where, you know, something that I don't know. And I know something, you know, in a decentralized way, right. If you do it just on Ethereum without zero knowledge proofs, like I can see everything that you have and you can see everything that I have. And it's kind of like takes away from the fun of the game. Mm -hmm. um, but does your knowledge proofs kind of enable you to do this in a decentralized setting? And why is that cool is because these games can exist like completely outside of like, let's say Starcraft, like it's completely outside of Blizzard's control, right? Like, like players mm -hmm. can fork the game, make their own rules and like have their own, like kind of this own like set of things. You can build all these, you can write all these scripts and tools to do fun things on the side. And like just opens it up, it makes it a sandbox. And I think it opens the door to like so much more creativity. And again, I think the zero knowledge proof aspect is important is because again, having the ability to like have a game where the mechanic is like, you don't know everything about what everyone else is doing, I think is really, really kind of powerful. So I actually think there's some really cool applications for zero knowledge proofs in gaming as well. Yeah, I've considered it before too. It'd be really cool if you could like clone GTA and apply yeah. blockchain and, you know, ZK or something like that. Um, and then you could just run around and rob everyone of their Bitcoins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And like, or do anything. It's like, it becomes like a totally open sandbox. It's kind of like the world of, of like Linux, right? Like yeah. Linux is like a million varieties of Linux and people take what they like and do other stuff. And like, that's cool. It's awesome. It's one of the reasons why Linux has evolved to become like the foundation of like the modern web in a sense that all the server, you know, most servers run it. Um, and it's, I think it's just because of its openness and the ability for anybody to take and tweak. And, and that's cool. That's the cool thing about blockchains in general and decentralized applications as opposed to, uh, to centralized ones. So. Yeah. Isn't it crazy how the gaming industry has gotten so big in his, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways has almost pushed blockchain and crypto far more than most other industries too. And you see all kinds of different things being developed even in metaverse stuff and, you know, VR and AR, um, I just feel like that blockchain and that kind of stuff and gaming are just like the perfect, like combo. Um, they really drive each other like crazy. I, I think those will be some of the biggest use cases in the next couple of years. Oh, definitely. Especially with stuff like, you know, non-fungible tokens becoming more and more mm. mainstream. Oh, yeah. uh, it's funny. I mean, when I was a brand new analyst at GGV Capital four years ago, we kind of talked about this. Uh, like, and I have friends from that time who were in crypto now still and, and like we, we kind of joke about like we always said gaming was going to be like and nfts were going to be like a big use case like the digital sword you could trade or whatever right mm -hmm. and now it's 
for so long it kind of wasn't a thing, but then it suddenly became a thing overnight. And that's actually gets me. It's, it's like one other aspect that zero knowledge proofs and Alio, I think you know that that it, you know one one um, thing that it can enable is more scalability in those transactions. I think uh, if you know the Ethereum blockchain, obviously, but others too have kind of struggled on the load of a lot of these NFT transactions because like you know you, they happen pretty frequently and it's kind of expensive to transfer mint stuff. And one advantage of using snarks or zero knowledge proofs as kind of the basis of your transaction model is you can you can batch a lot of transactions together at once in a way that gets you a much higher tps i mean this is exactly it's the same idea as like zk rollup on ethereum except in in our case you you get that for free and also you kind of get this privacy layer on top which just vanilla zk rollup doesn't give you um and, but i think that that scalability i think is directly applicable to uh to, to some nft or to, to the nft space and it's something that we're actually actively working on ourselves um enabling a proof of concept to show that yeah if they could just nft all the accessories and attachments and add-ons you get into games um that that would open up marketplaces like crazy and be able like play cod for example and get like a certain like set of um skins or attachments for your your weapons or your character and then be able to have that carry across all the cod games whenever you want or nft the ray gun when you're playing call of duty zombies so that you can get that at any point in time i don't know there's a lot of cool things i could potentially do uh yeah exactly just like i'm just like shocked like it's not done yet like it's people will go crazy for that stuff yeah like think about you're playing you're playing zombies or something on cod and then like your buddy rolls in with like a minigun he got from doom or something like that. tosses you like, an oh nft oh my god yeah you know or like yeah. yeah some like yeah like i don't know yeah some gun from fortnite and like it just it, it there's so many cool potential ways to recombine it yeah and i think so i i think the gaming space i mean i love i love the video game industry i've been a gamer my whole life and I, but i think there's a really really cool potential with blockchains and nfts and gaming Absolutely. How can people um, that are developers, you know, get started with Alia? Where, where can they go to figure out how to do this and, and get involved and start building things? Yeah. So, um, like I said, one of the goals of our project is to make it really accessible. And, uh, and, and so, like, we've created some of these tools to kind of help people get a taste of what you can do. So, um, so we have um, an online IDE or interactive development environment that I can, I can give you the link to. You can post in the show notes if sure. you want. Um, it's called, it's basically, it's leolang.org. Um, and you can go there and it kind of opens up this little editor for you and, and gives you some kind of code examples um, for, for potential little toy applications where you can write the application or edit the application right there and then compile it into into basically a proof format and then you know and then you can and you kind of get a sense you know feel get a feel for like what it's like to write a zero knowledge powered application right so that's the easiest way um our website alio.org also has a bunch of content around like hey why does this matter what's what's kind of like the underlying ideas here and then of course like for people who are really going to get deeper into it and want to go you know go deeper we have our discord server you know where there's a very passionate community of people who are into this stuff who you know you know, uh, participate in discussions or, you know, submit ideas for different applications. Um, we have a grants program for developers who, you know, really want to, you know, try their hand at building something that people might actually use. And, you know, we, we funded, I think two, but, you know, we have, I, I think up to 10 applications that we're considering right now funding. So it's a great way. I think one of the best ways to learn is by doing. 
and so that's uh, you know that that's definitely another way. So yeah, those are the ways that that I would um, that I would consider um, kind of for folks who don't know anything about Alio to learn more. It's leolang.org and then alio.org. You go there and it, it takes you to wherever you need to go. If you know nothing about zero knowledge proofs, though, I would say the best place to start is uh, my good friend Anna Rose runs this incredible podcast called uh, the Zero Knowledge Podcast, and um, it's a great it's a great show for anyone who doesn't have background on zero knowledge cryptography. I highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah. Shoot me some links, um, after the episode and I'll put them in the description below so people can find it, um, and go check all that stuff out. Anyways, Alex, thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about Alio and you know, all the stuff we talked about, zero knowledge proofs, gaming, blockchain, whatever. Um, really appreciate it. Good conversation. Um, hopefully talk to you again in the future too. Yeah. Hey, Brandon, really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, and thank you very much. And yeah, hope, hope we get to chat again sometime soon. Absolutely. Take care. Take care.